be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, so I invite you to turn there to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. It's also printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, before I read the passage, let me just give a shout out to the kids for taking notes. We had a few uh, notes this week, and, or from last week, and in particular, I want to share uh, Josiah Neff took some notes, and uh, it was about political theology, and he says, uh, he wrote, what does Jesus encourage in our political theology? The church must work for reformation. The church becomes a resistance movement. So it's great hearing these kids think about what does it mean to be a light in the darkness of our world, even at, on a political level, and uh, bringing God's kingdom to bear in the world. So love to see it. Kids, keep taking notes. Uh, parents, just know that there's materials in the foyer that your kids can use to help them in that process. Let's give ourselves to the word of the Lord now. It's good to be with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to being in this part of Mark with you this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels." In heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit now to enlighten our hearts and our minds as we give ourselves to the hearing and obeying of your Word. Do this work in our hearts. We depend on you. Would you meet each soul here in their lives, in the particular circumstances of their lives, that all of us would be more conformed to, your, uh, to the image of your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, if you are looking for a confident way to end an argument, there you have it at the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. I wouldn't try it on your spouse, but on Jesus' lips here, it is quite appropriate and commanding. Jesus is taking aim at ignorance. He's taking aim at ignorance, and we all have an ignorance problem. If you already know that about yourself then half the battle is already won. We all move through life with ignorance, and and we mistake our ignorance for wisdom, and then we apply that ignorance to to the most important places of our lives, and the results are not good. We all have confident ignorance. And that's the posture that Jesus encounters with the Sadducees. They are confident that they are right about there being no resurrection. And in quick order, Jesus makes it plain, they are quite wrong. And he says why they are wrong. And it's the the core of our passage, the center of our passage. Verse 24, is not this the reason you are wrong? That you know neither the Scriptures 
nor the power of God. And as for them, so it is for us, whether you're talking about marriage or the resurrection or the scriptures or anything else, outside of a knowledge of the scriptures and the power of God in Jesus Christ, you are ignorant about the most important things in life. Outside of a knowledge of the scriptures and the power of God in and through relationship with Jesus Christ, you are ignorant about the most important things in life. And then you walk through life in ignorance, walking in the darkness. So this morning, I want to demonstrate three areas in which this is true, and they're the the areas we see in our passage, namely marriage, the resurrection, and the scriptures themselves. Three areas where we need Jesus to understand them. Through Jesus, we understand marriage. Through Jesus, we understand the resurrection. Through Jesus, we understand the scriptures. We need him for all of these and more. So let's look at this first point. Through Jesus, we understand marriage. Now, the topic of marriage is actually somewhat incidental in this passage. You know, if the Sadducees had chosen some other example as a way of pinning Jesus on the resurrection, we wouldn't be talking about it. Because that's what they're trying to do here. They're, They're trying to expose what they think is a weakness or contradiction in the idea of resurrection. And they're using this hypothetical marriage scenario to, to do so. And you, you, we can see the fact that the resurrection is the emphasis, emphasis of the passage in verse 18, where it gives us this, this insight about the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So that's really the focus of, of the section. The Sadducees here are basically second in a string of encounters in Luke of religious leaders trying to outwit Jesus and pin him with some error. And in this case, it's about the resurrection. But because the example that they offer involves marriage, and Jesus responds by relating the resurrection to marriage, we gain some insight about marriage. And so we're, we're going to study, or we're going to talk about now about marriage, even though it's not the, really the main point of the passage. Well, what is that insight that Jesus gives here? It's basically this, that there is no marriage in heaven, either new marriages or the continuation of earthly marriages. Now, let me say that I know that for some, this is a difficult truth. You know, the marriage bond is the, is the closest, most tender of all bonds. You walk through life with someone, and then you get to heaven, and they aren't your person anymore. It seems almost to contradict the joy of heaven. And that's a fair point. But let me reason with you from Scripture on this and see if we can't satisfy that objection. So, first, from this passage, we're just looking at what we're learning from this passage, it's, it's clear on the surface that in Jesus' response to the scenario that none of the marriages would continue. So they ask, which of the seven will be her husband? And he says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor given, are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He doesn't say which man will be her husband, because the answer is none of them. And the answer is none of them because marriage is not a necessary institution in heaven. That's basically the key idea here. Marriage is instituted at the beginning of, of history in Genesis as a means of companionship and procreation, neither of which are necessary in heaven. 
because there will be no need for repopulation, because no one will die, and because the complete number of God's children will be there in perfect fellowship with God and with one another, in companionship with Jesus. So that's, that's why Je- this is why Jesus says that we are like angels. It's not that we are like them uh, ontologically, that, it, that is, in our being. We don't transform into angels. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in regards to marriage, we are like angels. That is, we do not need it in the same way angels don't. It no longer serves a meaningful function for us. It no longer applies. The purpose of marriage has no place in heaven, which already tells us that marriage is in service to something greater than itself, which can be hard for us to believe when marriage is the pinnacle of human relationships. It's in service to something greater than itself. A second passage that supports this view is, uh, Romans, is in Romans 7, where Paul says at the beginning of the chapter that death annuls the marriage covenant between a man and a wife. So if either, if either one dies, the marriage bond dies with it, which indicates that marriage is for this life only. You know, this is why our traditional marriage vows end with these words, till death do us part. Even in the vows we speak that bind us to each other for life, already there we are saying, this bond is temporary. This bond is temporary. But one more passage that offers great hope and comfort at the prospect of losing the joy of companionship, and in fact that directs the whole enterprise of marriage, is Paul's teaching about marriage in Ephesians 5 at the end of the chapter. There Paul says that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Quoting Genesis, he says this, "'Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.'" This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The marriage relationship, he says, is to be a picture, a mirror, of the relationship between Christ and the church. The man loving his wife like Christ loved the church, sacrificing for her and giving of himself for her good and her holiness and her nourishment, cherishing her with his whole being and all his energy, and the woman submitting to him and respecting him as her husband, as, as the church does Christ. It's this mutual indwelling this dance of love and forgiveness and honor and joy and delight and service, which are all words that characterize the gospel and the relationship between Christ and the church. That is what our marriages are supposed to be like. Your marriage is a shadow of the substance, and the substance is the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, my wife and I got married a few years ago, and the song that we had our first dance to at our wedding is a song about a marriage relationship forming. And the last stanza conveys this whole idea that Paul is talking about so well. It goes like this. Maybe in 100 years, 1 million laughs, 1 million tears, we will have a clearer view. This wasn't about me and you. See, this was written long before and carries on after we're gone, this story 
that we found ourselves in. Your marriage is a story in another story. Your marriage is a story in the marriage story between Christ and the church. Some of you need reminding, or maybe to learn for the first time, that your marriage is about more than your marriage. Your marriage, however wonderful it may be, does not exist for itself. It's one of a million micro-marriage stories that are part of the great marriage story between Christ and the church. And actually, to place it in that story consciously will lift your marriage to heights of joy far higher than your self-contained marriage could ever reach. And your great joy will be to see the real thing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the bride, the church, comes forward to meet her groom, our Lord. And it will be your great joy because you've been practicing at it for, together for all of your married life. You know, between, the, la- between uh, the services just now, I was talking to Irene Newell, who was married to her husband 61 years. He died on their anniversary, 61 years. And she was saying, you know, this resonates with me. I love my husband. It is not my hope to to be reunited with him in heaven like a spouse. I'm excited to see Jesus. That was in her heart. That is not natural. That comes from the Spirit. That comes from a biblical understanding of what marriage is. Some of you, so some of us need reminding that our marriages are not for themselves. But some of us also need reminding, or maybe to learn from the first time, that the dysfunctions of your marriage, however they manifest, are because you are neglecting to pattern your marriage on the gospel. Where there should be forgiveness, you practice resentment. Where there should be service, you practice selfishness. Where there should be love and humility, there is instead hatred and bitterness and pride. And you withhold and you withhold and you withhold and you blame and blame and blame. And what is in your wake but pain and disruption and, and destruction and dysfunction? Won't you apply the gospel to your marriage? I suspect many of you want to in theory, but there's a point at which applying the gospel to your marriage means you have to say, I was wrong. It means you have to say, I have pride in my heart and I need to bring it into the light. It's beautiful, but only if you use it. Won't you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord? Come out from under the spell of your pride and walk in the light of the gospel in your marriage? Your marriage is not the most important relationship in your life. It's not the most important story in your life. Your relationship with Jesus, the story of his redemption, this is the most important thing. And your marriage is to serve it by mirroring it. And that will return the most joy and health to your marriage more than any other approach could. So try it. I know that there are broken and struggling marriages in this room. Oh, that you would try this earnestly.
So we've seen that through Jesus we understand marriage. We understand that it is a shadow of the substance, of Christ and His church being the substance. Secondly, through Jesus we understand the resurrection. We understand the resurrection. As I said, the resurrection is the core topic of this passage, really. It's what the Sadducees come to debate about, and it's what they're specifically wrong about. When Jesus says, is not this the reason you are wrong? He means wrong to deny the resurrection. And here's just some, why some background on the Sadducees is important. The Sadducees were a religious uh, group that believed that there was no resurrection. And they believed that because they held that only the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, were authoritative among Old Testament scriptures. And so because the Torah did not teach the resurrection, or so they thought, they didn't believe in it. You know, if you were to go outside the Torah to other parts of the Old Testament, you would get more than hints of the truth of the resurrection. And in fact, as the scriptures unfold, you get an outright assumption among the biblical authors that there is life with God after death. But the Sadducees did not hold that because they, held, uh, because they didn't think it was taught in the Torah, which is why Jesus' reply here is so brilliant. Because look where he quotes from. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses. That is the Torah. He's talking about Exodus specifically. In the passage about the bush, that is the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Present tense, I am their God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In using this quote, Jesus is doing two things. First, he is saying the resurrection is taught in the Torah. There it is in the book of Exodus. This is about the resurrection, he says. And second, he's placing the resurrection in relation to the relationship between God and his covenant people. This is covenant promise. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. The logic of Jesus' teaching is this. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob an everlasting one, a promise to be their God. If they are dead, then a covenant God swore to uphold is forever dissolved. In other words, God is unfaithful to His covenant promises if His covenant people are no more. So if God promises to be my God forever and then I die and am no more, then God has lied. But because God does not lie and promises to be to His people their God forever, there must be something in place for that to happen. And the thing is the resurrection. I I like how one commentator put it. He says this, God would not pledge Himself to the dead unless the dead were raised to life. Jesus' argument for the reality of resurrection is based on the assumption that the call of God establishes a relationship with God. And once a relationship with God is established, it bears promise, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended even by death. The relationship is the result of the promise and power of God. There you see Jesus talks about the power of God. The result of the promise and power of God that conquers the last enemy, death itself. The power of God in the resurrection upholds the faithfulness of God in His covenant promises. And so Jesus is identifying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as among the living and so upholding the faithfulness of God. 
And so now we see why the resurrection is more than just a matter of debate among the religious elite in this time. The resurrection is crucial to the faithfulness of God. God's promises depend on His having always a people to whom He fulfills His promises. This is why Jesus had to die and rise again. Jesus had to pioneer the path from the grave to an embodied eternal life with God. Apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, shadow and substance. The biblical writers in the Old Testament were grasping at the shadow of the resurrection. They had some sense of it. Christ appears as the substance. He takes the path of resurrection. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, there is no resurrection of anyone. Only Jesus can establish the truth, the reality of the resurrection. And so, if we deny the afterlife or we speak about it in reference to anything but the resurrection of Christ, we speak in ignorance. Jesus is the lens through which we perceive life after death with God, and there is no other lens. Do you want peace, with, uh, uh, do you want peace about life after death? Do you want confidence about what happens when you die? Do you want to know anything about the end of things? You will only know it in Jesus. And if you love this life so much that the thought of the afterlife maybe scares you, saddens you, I want you to consider this. This life is a shadow of the substance to come. You know, life on earth is... You can think of it like a rough draft. You know, there's a lot that's good and beautiful and worthy here, and everything good is a gift from God. The next life is the perfect draft, the most beautiful story ever told with no flaws, no errors, no griefs, no pains, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. If you love this life, just imagine the life to come if you are in Christ. And so, through Jesus, we understand marriage, the most important relationship, or one of the most important relationships in our lives. Through Jesus, we understand the resurrection, the truth and the reality that is the reason for our faith. And now third, the last thing we only understand through Jesus, the Scriptures. Only through Jesus do we understand the Scriptures. Here in this passage, Jesus presents himself as the master teacher of Scripture. He's able to do this here and throughout the Gospels because he is the interpretive key of the Scriptures and is indeed the very Word itself. What do I mean by all that? Well, what Jesus does here is remarkable. He teaches the teachers. He teaches the PhDs, if if you will. In fact, he takes the teachers to task on their master subject. You know, they only believe the Torah. The Torah. He shows them that they don't even understand it, that they read it in the dark. He says, it's not this the reason you are wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he opens up for them the Scriptures. 
You know, this would be like a cello player coming up to Yo-Yo Ma and saying, oh, you think you can play the cello? <laughs> Let me show you how the cello really works. And then playing the cello in such a way that cello playing is forever changed. This is like that. This scene is emblematic of Jesus' whole relationship with the Scriptures throughout the Gospels. He opens them up and interprets them with greater clarity and precision and authority than ever before. Why? Because they are about Him. They are about Him. One of the most important passages in all the Bible is in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And then again in 44 through 45, you can jot those down if you're taking notes to return to later. It's a place where after Jesus' resurrection, where twice in that chapter He appears to His disciples and opens to them the Scriptures. And these are how those two sections read. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, he's talking about his death and burial, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying, in the Old Testament, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, and now you understand it. In verses 44 through 45, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in all the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's identifying every part of the Hebrew Bible, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. What's he saying? He's saying the Scriptures are about him. In reference to himself, he says, or it says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's what he's doing with the, with the Sadducees. That's what he does to anyone who comes to him to understand the Scriptures. This is so important. The Bible is a story about Jesus. You know, if you read the Old Testament only, it's a story with no ending. If you read just the New Testament... It's part two with no part one. The Bible is telling one story, and the focal point is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. In fact, the Bible goes one step further to say that Jesus is not only the interpretive key of the Scriptures, but is Himself the Word of God. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. He is the fullness of the revelation of God. God speaks to us in Jesus. And Jesus only can make sense of all of Scripture. In fact, outside of the regeneration of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, we are darkened in our understanding. We read Scripture with the lights off. We can't see it clearly. We don't know how to respond to it as we should, we're unable to outside of relationship with Jesus. Here's the bottom line of all of this. Outside of a knowledge of the Scriptures and the power of God in Jesus Christ, we are ignorant about the most important things in our lives. Outside of Jesus, we don't know what marriage is for or how it should work. Outside of Jesus, we don't know what awaits us after we die and how we should prepare for it. Outside of Jesus, we don't know how to understand the Scriptures and make use of them. And the Scriptures 
teach us about all the other important parts of life. Suffering, money, poverty, blessing, leadership, family, God's will, authority, on and on. All the things of life. We only understand the wisdom of Scripture through the person of Jesus. And they are lost on us outside of relationship with Jesus. Don't you see how helpless you are without Jesus? Your ignorance is not just a knowledge problem. It's a heart problem. It's a life problem. If you neither understand the Scriptures nor the power of God, you walk in darkness. You stumble through life. And then you meet resurrection unto death. That is the plain teaching of Scripture. This is your life if you do not know Jesus. But you can know Him. You can know Him. Here's how to know Him. Don't come to Him as a Sadducee trying to disprove Him. Don't come to Him as a judge or a critic. Come to Him as a listener. Come to Him humbly. Come to Him to learn. You'll see next week how the, the scribe comes. He hears in Jesus the wisdom of God and he listens. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That is how you come to Jesus, in faith and humility. You listen with an open heart to believe. Hebrews 11.6 says, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And you know what he rewards you with? himself. He takes all the curses that belong to you, death, alienation from God, shame, torment. He takes those upon himself on the cross, and he gives you himself. And with himself, all that he has, blessing and wisdom and power and honor and holiness and the love of God and life everlasting, the kingdom. He gives you the kingdom. Don't stay in your ignorance. Give it up. Give up your ignorance. If you know him, make use of what you know. Don't be a fool. Seek God with faith and humility. Let, Je let Jesus be the logic of your marriage, of your life, of your Bible. Disavow your own knowledge, which is darkness. And if you don't know him, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, turn to him today. Let this be the day. I will stand here after the service, and I will wait. If anyone wants to come and ask about the gospel, what does it mean to be saved? I will be standing here. Let today be the day that you give up your own ignorance and walk in the light of Jesus Christ. He is lovely and kind and good. There is no other speaker or teacher who speaks the truth but Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us Jesus Christ, the substance of everything.
Oh, that we would gather every area of our life around Him, His wisdom, His authority, that we would sit under Him humbly with faith, earnestly seeking Him. Restore every corner of our life to the knowledge and the power of God in Jesus Christ. Our marriages, our thoughts about death, our thoughts about work and money and everything else. You are Lord. Help us to sit at your feet, listen, and obey. We love you because you first loved us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.